A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we kind of get stuck into the new EP, I wanted to ask a bit about your favorite band, Nine Inch Nails, who I'm also a big fan of. And I was wondering, you know, we can try and, you know, pick it apart sonically and see what you take influence. But I was interested in how do you feel you take influence from them from a kind of philosophy point of view and from their attitudes towards making music? How do you think you kind of take influence from them? I don't know necessarily about their, their attitudes towards making music. They're very serious, aren't they, Nine Inch Nails? <laughs> like, you, don't, you don't see them like cracking jokes in interviews and stuff. But uh, I, I don't know. I think... Um, and I don't love every Nine Inch Nails record either. Like, I think their catalogue is, is very long and varied and it's, some of it's better than others. But um, I think they, they do the, the sort of like guitar and synth sound very tastefully. Uh, they, they walk a really cool line between like keeping kind of heavy and having really great sounding electronics and still having a lot of guitars in their music and stuff. So I think we sometimes do it right. We sometimes do it wrong, but I think we definitely sort of like, if we're a bit like, Oh, is this a little too far in the wrong direction? We, you know, consult some of those records sometimes. I guess it's that sort of balance between like acoustic and digital instruments, isn't it? I'm kind of trying to find that line. It's interesting seeing how they've sort of embraced certain modern production techniques as they've, as time has gone on. Obviously, they've been about a long time and technology's changed. It's cool that they kind of like cherry pick some real modern stuff, but then they're true analog gear nerds that, you know, a lot of that is. I mean, half of the sounds on some of the new records is like since I've never even heard of, you know, crazy modular units that they've built or like, Oh, I can't remember what it's called. There's this mental one that they use on a lot of the soundtracky stuff that they do. And it's like a sort of um, completely like unpredictable, like machine that just kind of randomly generates noises and they're like strings that you like tap on. It's super crazy. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's cool. Like I like to think that we're more and more, the older we get and more open stuff we are, we used to be quite like rigid in our, in our, approach to writing music and that meant that it kind of hindered us because we sort of got stuck in little boxes and yeah i don't know i think i think we're getting better at that 
do you, I mean, when you first start off, though, do you need to be rigid in order to, to find your voice? Do you kind of need to have those constraints on you in order to figure out what you want to say? I think it's the other way around. Like, I think now we trust each other enough to know that uh, in the song that it starts out as, like, you should hear some of the, like, real scratch demos that, that we send each other. Like, they sound nothing like our band. And it, it's more about being like, what about this flavor that is then added into the part of existing ingredients? And it sounds really pretentious, but it's, it's the most sort of like, uh, <laughs> I guess, visual way I can describe it. You just got to kind of trust each other to know, like, I know that you're not actually, you don't want to make a Depeche Mode song. You're just incorporating this little flavor of that in with what we actually sound like. Whereas we used to get stuck in big sort of like, I don't know, circles where we'd be like, oh, I don't think it should sound like this. It should be records should sound like this. And I hadn't even written anything yet. We're just fucking going back and forth arguing about, not even arguing, but just discussing this hypothetical album that didn't exist. And now it's more sort of like we know the process and it's just kind of like passing it around until it starts to sound like what, it, what we all know it should sound like. When you become more familiar with the process in that way, I mean, if we look at this last EP, for example, where did the process surprise you? Where did it kind of take you, take you by surprise during the creation of this new piece of work? Well, nothing was happening for so long. Like all of 2020, we were like, we've never had more than six weeks off the road with nothing to do ever. You know, there's always like, we rarely get six weeks off the road anyway. So we're like, we have an indefinite amount of time to, to write. And just nothing's happening. You know, we just kept like, we, because we couldn't meet up, you know, and, and we do, even though we write on the computer a lot, we do, we are often together. You know, someone would start writing some stuff and it'd be really like lackluster and just, just not right. Like the vibe is just off. And you could tell the person writing it was like, kind of like, oh, I don't know, this, maybe, I don't know. It just got to like two thirds of the way through the year. And I was like, this, we knew we wanted to write an EP. We were like, fuck, this is just not, not happening. And same with me, like I wasn't chilling out fucking gold either. Like I was like writing loads of demos and stuff and being like, this sucks. And, and like lyrically just kind of like not sure what to, to do because everything was so uncertain. And there's an element of like, okay, cool. Let's channel that into the music, which is what we did. Well, you, yeah, I was going to say, you hear that if you think of the first song, you have that kind of mantra-esque chant of give me direction. Yeah, yeah. And that's the whole thing of the EP. Like, to be fair, that is, it's a complete lockdown record in a sense, because it is so much about kind of like the uncertainty, the isolation, the, the frustration. And, and I guess a lot of it is about kind of my thoughts on people's British fucking people's reaction to this, these, these times and what people became. Uh, when you're kind of in it, it's a bit, it's kind of hard to see the wood for the trees sometimes. And I think that was kind of where we were at. Cause we were like, are we ever going to go back on tour? Or, you know, no one remember like sort of June last year, no one knew what the hell was going on. So yeah, we were kind of stuck in it for so long. And then one day it just sort of happened. And, and Mike uh, had been really quietly and sneakily working on about 10 demos. And he just sent me them on new year's day and I was, this year. And I was like, this is all sick. And I usually I'll be like, I'll write some stuff and send it back to him within like, you know, six hours, like one song. What do you think of this? And pass it back and forth. But I, I left, I was like, just leave leave with me for like two weeks. And I wrote like complete songs to all of these 10 tracks and sent them back. And, and everyone was just like really stoked on it. Uh, And then about, I think three, three of those songs were from that original, original batch. 
yeah and then all of a sudden it was just like we're firing on all cylinders and we were just kind of writing loads and loads of music and everybody was really bold it was it was, it was weird but it felt really good to just because because they were sick straight away like some some of our best songs have sounded shit for a long time before before we've kind of scratched off the the coal to get to the proverbial diamond but this was kind of they kind of sounded like how they sound on the record which were the you said there was three of that initial batch that kind of made it onto the final thing which three was it uh it was desperate pleasures um algorithm and let the right one in interesting yeah let the right one in that's it kind of takes on a slightly different emotional texture to the rest of the EP and it has a different feel about it. How did the emotion that you were kind of using to create that song when you were writing to it compare to everything else that had come before? Yeah, it's a bit of a separate song. Sonically, so when the, the original kind of super early versions that Mike sent me of those uh, of that song, it was that song and algorithm were actually quite similar. Um, and then they kind of both went off in different directions. But uh, yeah, let the right one in it kind of sits a bit separately thematically from from the rest of them. It's just a love song about you know, caring about somebody to the point that you would like do really horrible things for them if they ever asked you to kind of thing. Well, that kind of feels representative of the mindset you're kind of looking at of people throughout the pandemic and the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was just sort of like at home with my, with my fiance who I've never really had a lot, you know, spent a lot of time with for more than, you know, these incremental windows. So I was just sort of really thankful for her and as a person and, and having her to share this shit time with because so many people, my friends, like were kind of on their own and stuff. And I'm thinking like, you know, I'm so lucky that I've got this cool person that I love to hang out with that's, that's here. So yeah, it's kind of writing a song for her and, and, and maybe in a lot of ways writing a song for those other people as well. You know, did you find that it changed the dynamic of the relationship in any way? If you hadn't had that kind of long space of time together previously? Uh, I mean, we got engaged, so that, that yeah, it, it, it didn't, didn't hurt. It. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. We we had no like it was piece of piss for us. Like we, I, I kind of really, in a lot of ways, enjoyed the the pandemic for 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 some reasons. You know, that being the main one, it was it was. I, I can't complain. So I I I made a lot of good out of that out of the pandemic for sure. It's interesting though, because I mean, this EP kind of. I mean, if we look at it as something that's kind of representative of what you were thinking about during that time period, a lot of it is kind of looking at the darker aspects of what was going on and the kind of, you know, people, the, the shelves in the supermarkets being bare and everyone kind of scrambling yeah. for whatever they could. <laughs> yeast. What was that about? Everyone's getting yeast. Everyone was wanting bread, some bacon. bacon bread. Yeah. Yeah. That's why everyone went to sourdough because they couldn't get any yeast. <laughs> at what point did those things kind of start to weigh on your mind you think well i think they actually got a lot better i think the first heart like 2020 was really dark like i wasn't really seeing that like lighter side of it i was like is my band ever gonna get like gonna be a thing again you know if this if there's no live music for six years because because this was pre-vaccine you know like who knew what was gonna go on i was like oh am i ever gonna play a show again am i gonna see my friends again oh it felt so much longer yeah so I didn't know what was going to happen and, and it was really dark, you know, and that was when people were really mean. And I was, just remember sort of seeing, like I lived in a different part of Manchester I lived in and I didn't really, like it wasn't very friendly in my neighborhood and, and people were just very sort of like, you know, for themselves. Yeah. And, and it just all felt very cold and very bleak. And I channeled a lot of the, I wrote a lot of the lyrics for the record back then. 
the songs kind of came a little bit later. But um, the way I kind of saw it was all of that, the negative sides of that were being channeled into that music. And a lot of it was, as well, wasn't necessarily from my perspective. You know, some, a lot of it was just kind of seeing how other people were. You're talking to all my friends, like, the band really struggled, like, all individually with their mental health. Like, I did as well for a lot of parts of it, but they really, you know, a lot of them really struggled and I'm sure they won't mind me saying that. And, you know, loads of my other friends had a, had a really, really difficult time emotionally. And, and, yeah, just kind of seeing people, you know, when the Zoom quizzes kind of stopped, like, everyone was like, the novelty had worn off and everything just got really quiet. I remember that period of, of the pandemic. It was just really bleak. Yeah, the kind of last couple of months before things started to open up again. The summer break. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Before lockdown too. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. I, I just, I just, I really worried about people. Like I was so worried about other people and, and how they were coping with it and stuff. And I tried as best I could to sort of talk to all my friends and family and, and be there for them and stuff. But I, you know, it, it, Very difficult it really when you bad. can't actually be there for them, like in a physical sense. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You mentioned earlier on the algorithm and let the right one in when they came to you. They were kind of in a similar shape. The song that was initially sent the demo. Yeah, yeah. When you're developing a song and you know those two tracks start to move in different directions, what is it that's kind of guiding you down that path? What is it that's leading you through the process? It kind of leads itself, and um, you know, because we because we really do write as a five. It's not like one of us will start a song, but then it does get passed around, you know, and, and often like Jord will get the, the drummer will get sent the, the song and he'll, he'll kind of restructure it or he'll kind of change the tempo and the beat and stuff. And it can completely change the feeling of the song. And sometimes it's wrong and we go back and then sometimes it's right. And, and everybody does that really. We all kind of like try, try a new thing. And often it'll be like one thing and you'll be like, Oh yeah, that that's, that's what that is. That's the, that's the song, you know? Um, and sometimes you'll fight that. Sometimes you'll kind of be like, uh, like another song that we've been working on um, in the studio recently. That's, it's, it's like a thing where it was, it was like a, a real kind of groovy track. And then we made it like a much more energetic track. And for ages, I was kind of like, I don't know guys, like this is, this is not, I don't think this is the thing. And then you kind of realize that the other seven voices in the room are like, this is the thing. And you're like, well, I guess I'm probably wrong then. And you kind of have to like take yourself away from it, live with it for a while. And then you're like, actually I, I was wrong in that scenario. You know, it's definitely like a, what do they call that? A Republic. I think that is, <laughs> I don't know what that is, but yeah, democracy. Um, de definitely a democracy. Yeah, for sure. At what point do you think you kind of developed a trust so that that could kind of function in a smooth way? Oh, it took a lot. It took a long time. You know, it, it was really gradual. Definitely. Like I'd say only sort of, I'd say only over the last year or two, we got to the point where we completely kind of know what the band sounds like and we trust each other to, to make the right choices and to have that kind of faith that it will end up in the right place. You know, I, I don't think even on, on the last record, I don't know that we were always totally there. Everyone, every album has got better as you've gotten to know each other and, and write music for longer periods of time, you know, but, it took, it took longer than you would think. Not to say that when we were writing that, it was completely a, a shit show, but you, you definitely have those moments where you'd sort of be like, is this, like, what is this? What is this song? Yeah. That can create a tension that can sit quite nicely in the music though. And it has, like, uh, there's still tracks on, on all of our albums that like, 
not not many, like one song I'd say on each record where like one person in the band was like vehemently opposed to it in terms of like the direction that it took. And it it made it like kinda kinda difficult, but it it is the right call. Do you know what I mean? I've been wrong on it before where I've been like, I'm not about this, but you just kind of have to kind of roll the punches and it does turn out the right way. It, it it's just a tasting at the end of the day, isn't it? Yeah. In terms of the development of a song like Carbon Mono as well, you have this kind of lyrical device at the heart of it where it is a conversation. Yeah. And it kind of takes on that shape. How did that influence the development of that track sonically? I don't, do you know what? I don't know, because that song came about so... We wrote that in an afternoon. Like, it came about so quickly. Uh, and, and we'd already recorded the EP, and we kind of went away and were like, this, this is missing something here. So we kind of wrote it, um, and it came together super fast. And then we went back and recorded it in a separate session. But um, I think I definitely wanted to write this song that was kind of about, uh, you know, about, about progress and about all this, all this kind of stuff that you see, just no- nothing changing, despite there being such a, an obvious solution. But you kind of realize that some problems are kind of like generationally like baked in. But I thought it'd be a bit of a, I didn't want to do that, that kind of thing where you, you kind of like, sort of blame everything on on a previous generation and, and and you just sort of say, oh, you know, we're the next generation and we know better than you and all this kind of thing. And and I kind of I don't like it when people are so black and white about things because it the the answers are always in the grey in the middle. So I kind of like the idea, even though I am firmly on the side of my generation on this particular subject that it kind of was low-key written about, I think that having that conversation aspect of it, like allowing the hypothetical older generation to have like their, have it from their perspective as well, kind of creates this interesting tension in the song um, and, and makes people sort of like maybe think about things as more of a back and forth as opposed to a like yelling at the one side and not hitting them out. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult too, because if you look at what the older generation have achieved, they have very much pushed a lot of things further along and they have managed to wrap up some of the kind of injustices that were going on when they were growing up. But it's just a case of, I feel like every generation can never really do enough. Like there's always going to be more to be done, which is when you kind of look back, it's yeah, exactly hard, hard to remember that things were worse previously sometimes. And you look at like, and I don't know how old you are, but you look at like, like I'm, I'm 28 and I look back when I was in like high school, the, you know, the, le- the, the rhetoric and the views even of, of people that were my age then, that, e- even in, in the, what, 10 years since then, the world has changed so much and, and a lot of things that, things that I used to hear kids say in like the, the fucking playground are, are not acceptable by any measure today, you know, so you think about, how much things have changed since the eighties, for instance, you know, I, I went for dinner with my mom the other day and she was, uh, she, she was talking about this and she was just like, you kids blame, blame everything on my generation and blah, blah. And I was like, mom, I'm not saying that like, we're talking about climate change. I was like, mom, I'm not saying that you're responsible for climate change. I'm just saying that like, I've not been alive long enough to be responsible for climate change. So it's obviously not my generation's fault. And I'm not saying it's your generation's fault. There's probably like a thousand people that you could point at your finger at and say that you could change this and you haven't. And they just happen to be old enough that they belong to your generation. But I'm not blaming everyone that is of your age group for this problem. And, and the problem is the people who are in a position to change things have a lot of vested interests 
not to. Yeah, of course they do. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just it's another one of those things of like a multifaceted issue that people love to just kind of like put a nice neat line underneath it. But yeah, I think I think old, older people particularly get quite defensive when you start like blaming their like generation for stuff. But yeah, I tried to remind her of that. I was like, Mum, you, you're she's an ecologist. I was like, you you literally taught me about climate change when I was a kid. It's, I know it's not your fault. It's just. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. You grew up in, was it Blackpool you grew up as well? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that, that's an interesting place to kind of think of in the context of what we've been saying, because it very much feels like a place that's kind of stuck in a particular time. Oh, yeah. Very tied yeah. to the 80s. Yeah, totally. Like 80s, early 90s. Like it's it's not even changed much since I was like a, a little kid, barely. Stuck in a time warp. That's kind of part of the charm in a lot of senses, but it's also part of the, the problem. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's almost a question of, and we could look at this in kind of what the context of what we've been speaking of too, it's how do you kind of fix something without losing something as a result of doing that, if that makes sense? Like how do you, yeah. for instance, how do you modernize a place like that without kind of losing the kind of rustic charm that it has? It's, it's weird, weird that you should ask that actually, because I was uh, coming back from London on the train yesterday with, with Mike from, from Boston Manor, and we were, um, we were talking about this specific like exactly what you just said. And with Blackpool, it's really difficult because it's a place that was built for a different time in a lot of senses. You know, it's, it's, it's a big town, like the actual size of it and the number of buildings that occupy the town is it, quite large, but there's not really a reason for that many people to be there anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's not the, the sort of destination holiday capital of, of England, anymore, well, of, of, of Britain anymore. Um, nor, nor should it be, to be honest. And, and there's no industry there anymore. You know, there used to be a lot of like car factories and stuff there. It's almost like Detroit or something. So the kind it's of really similar. Yeah. Like when I've been to Detroit, I've kind of felt a lot of kinship with it, to be honest. Um, so yeah, it, it's a really difficult problem to solve Blackpool because it is still a toy. You know, it's, it's heaving in the summer, but that doesn't warrant it to be a town the size that it is. And you know, people need jobs and they need to something to do and, and it's definitely kind of stagnated a little bit. So I don't really know the answer to that question. Yeah. I come from Aberdeen and you kind of see the same thing in the early stages happening there where it's very much a time built upon the kind of oil and gas industry and these kind of mm. drilling platforms out at sea. And as that industry starts to wrap up, you know, as a result of climate change, yeah. you can see it creeping into the kind of corners there and where that's going to be in like 20 years or so, you know. Totally. I, I drove um, from Aberdeen to Edinburgh uh, this year and I saw like that oil rig graveyard that they have there on, on like the, in the estuary. I thought oh, it was crazy. It was like 20 oil rigs that they're just like done with. They're just kind of left there now. Yeah. It's almost, it, again, you know, coming back to Detroit, it feels like when you see those photos of just like empty, you know, blocks and blocks of houses just sitting. Yeah, yeah, they burn no them all down. And yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. And that's the thing about Britain is, it is I, I hate saying this because it makes me sound, sound um, well, it's just this kind of sentence is associated with not very nice things, but it, it is a very like densely populated country. But that's not to say that it's, it's like full inverted do you know what I mean there's so much of it that is just like sitting wasted and un unused you know especially in like the north yeah it, it's there's so much of it that is they're throwing housing uh, developments up but there's so much of like town centres that are just empty and abandoned so it's just going to keep getting worse yeah. as well like you see the kind of more and more closures kind of creeping into the town centres too 
Well, that's a huge problem, isn't it? That they're trying to solve, which is, you know, what do you, the high street is dead and you can't, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. The internet exists and people, especially now that there's been a pandemic, all that's done is, is made it more convenient and more sensible, to be honest, to shop online. And there is an argument to be made that in some, I, I don't know the answer to this, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I heard someone saying that it is technically more environmentally friendly to order online, even though you're getting a lot of packaging and stuff, you're having fewer cars on the road, you're having fewer businesses have brick and mortar stores, which is increasing the carbon footprint. I don't know. But now the problem is that you've got all these, like say these town centers that are just kind of like vape shops and charity shops and that's it. And I don't know what to, what to do with them, to be honest, because like where, I, where I'm from, like you don't have that middle-class income that want to go out and eat and drink out three times a week. So, you know, like I live in Manchester now and there's all the little suburbs around Manchester and little parts of Salford where they're throwing up all these like really nice wine bars and, and stuff and, and restaurants and they're packed because people that live there have the money to go and do that. But, you know, and you're never going to fill Blackpool town centre with these, you know, craft breweries and stuff because the people there just, they don't, they don't want that and they don't, that's not for them. So, yeah, it's a really difficult problem to solve and I don't know how they're going to do it. It's interesting that we've kind of spent the last five, ten minutes talking about where Britain is at at the moment and the way that it is kind of in a, maybe a slightly harsh term, but a kind of state of decay. You know, we're seeing this kind of decline of what used to be and the kind of progression moving forward. What would you preserve about Britain today? And, you know, for 20 years' time, if we're kind of looking ahead. <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? Because there's a lot I would really, really like to change. I'm, I'm not entirely sure because I really want to do away with this weird hangover of colonialism that people, the older people seem to be obsessed with. And I think once the Queen goes, I think, not to sound brutal about it, but, <laughs> but no, but you know what, we have that, when you still have that very tangible connection, a person who was directly kind of in touch with that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, for it's sure. It's hard to I kind mean, of shake the shadow of it until those direct connections are gone. Yeah, because she lived through the wars. And it's, but that's the weird thing, though, I think, is that the, the, the stupid, bigoted people that love to sort of like make things about World War II all the time, they're even alive then. It's like they're, they're the children of the, of, of the greatest generation that were alive then. So I'm, I'm always kind of like confused why there's like this weird sort of like, we won the war, keep calm and carry on, like we're the, we're, we don't need Europe. Like that weird fucking middle aged generation are obsessed with all that. Carry on, where they came back for a while as well, didn't it? Yeah, what was that about? Here for like on signs and everything for. Oh god, and all like people using it in marketing and so it creeped me out. It was after the royal wedding, I think, wasn't it? That oh, that's got that pride came back. Yeah, that'll be it. Yeah, right up there, up next to the prosecco o'clock posters. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I don't know, man. Um, I think I think generally speaking, I I would like to preserve some of the. It sounds super lame, but some of the um, the architecture of our country, I think um, we're sort of pretty good at that because a lot of it is listed and stuff, but um, just really, really beautiful. And our fucking countryside, man, and our, our like smaller towns and, and, and villages and things, I'd like for them to... There's quite a few near me, like Hebden Bridge and stuff. I don't know if you're familiar with that place, but that, Another like, man. they don't... They don't really, it's just, it's near where my parents live, but it, it's just sort of like a, a small town. It's not really a village, but they have, it's like all kind of independent businesses. And it's all the people that live there that run these businesses. And they, 
to have like a really cool little community. And there's not really any sort of chain anything there. Like I guess there's a supermarket and stuff, but um, yeah, I, I think that it'd be cool if we could kind of like find a way back to uh, having people be able to like run their own business again and, and do that and serve the community in doing that. Yeah, it's interesting you kind of say that because if we look to this AP and what we were talking about in terms of how it looked at the maybe darker sides of people that emerged during the pandemic, those businesses like you're speaking about and that kind of community spirit is very much a way for us to kind of keep in touch with the antithesis of that and keep in touch of this, with this feeling of connection to each other. Well, for sure. I think there was two, two types of people that I saw in the pandemic. There was the people that were sort of like posting their phone numbers through to like neighbours that they didn't know's letterbox saying, you know, we're here if you need anything. If, you, if anyone vulnerable lives here, we can go to the supermarket for you. And then there was the people at the supermarket just filling their trolley full of toilet paper that they're never going to use. And Yeah, I, I, think, I think it is interesting. And I do, I do think... On the whole, you know, you look at you look at like Glasgow when um, they, when people tried to deport all those immigrants and stuff, and that housing estate stopped them. And so, I think there is a real there is a real greatness in some communities that really do look out for each other. And then there's quite the opposite of that. So, I, I want to find a way back to people really looking out for each other and and seeing their community and not not just kind of like they live in this part of this massive country. Like, I do think that there's such a thing as, as like local towns and communities and stuff. And, you know, even if you live in a city, your borough, like it, it, it's people, people do need to look out for you. You can only make change on, uh, on incremental levels before you can get to the biggest stuff, I think. And I think people have forgotten that a little bit. I think live music is another way to get back to it too, though. That feeling of when you're in a room with each other and everyone in that space is kind of connected. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and it was harder to see that when there was none of it. You, you don't know? get that with a live stream. You really don't, man. Like, that was weird when we did that live stream. I, I, I enjoy, I'm glad I got the opportunity to do it, but it definitely was, it wasn't the same thing at all. I, and, and a lot of it, you kind of realize what you, you don't realize what you have to have gone sort of thing sometimes. So let me appreciate what I have a lot. It's interesting too, because I was reading an interview surrounding the last album when it came out and the interviewer used the word apathy in relation to describing the album, which was quite interesting to me because I'm particularly on this new EP too even when you're looking at certain topics with a degree of frustration, there's always, it seems to be coming from a place of compassion and a place of trying to understand. I'm just intrigued. How do, how do you feel about that word apathy? Do you see apathy in your music at all at any place or where does that kind of sit with you, that assessment of it? I think that all of our previous music has been really apathetic. I think it's a really good observation. Yeah. I think maybe that's sort of like youthful angst, but I, I feel like, I've definitely kind of done a lot of introspection and, and kind of growing up uh, over the past couple of years over this pandemic. And, and yeah, I, I think it's, I, things are pretty bleak, aren't they? But I, I do think that there's a lot to be quite hopeful about. And I do have hope. And I do think that um, just sitting back as a musician and complaining about everything doesn't do anything, does it? You know what I mean? I think uh, there's, uh, we write aggressive music as well so I'm always going to try I'm, it's hard for me to write about like really happy things when I'm screaming my head off you know like it, it definitely has to kind of I use the, the I'm a pretty glass half full guy as well which I think people don't know me are quite surprised at but I think I use definitely use that sort of like stuff that is pissing me off or, or scaring me or, or upsetting me I channel that into the music because it's you know it's a way to kind of vent that and, and talk about and dissect those feelings but um, on the whole, I'm 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 really positive. I tried to be, and I think that 
trying to look to the future with a positive outlook is, is the best thing at this point in time, for sure. Is that why you think the music often comes across as quite direct to, you know, if we look at something like Algorithm, you're very directly talking about the the kind of the frustrations that can come with being a musician, all these other expectations that are kind of thrown upon you. Is that kind of representation of it very much a result of you just directly trying to express this frustration? Yeah. And I think the pandemic, like that song in particular, because everybody couldn't go out and play music, it, it, it became so much more that like everyone was suddenly like a TikToker and everyone was... emphasised the problem that had already existed. I think so. And, and it kind of pushed people more towards that. So I saw a lot of people... Um, and, you know, we definitely felt the pressure to do that. Like, and, and we, we tried to kind of be adaptive. Like, we used to be quite a bit kind of hermits and not really want to put ourselves out there too much. But we started... We found our own way to kind of connect with our fans through modern social media, things like Twitch... You know, we, we do a lot of Twitch streaming and stuff, but we're not there like on TikTok and like, hey, YouTube, what's up? You know what I mean? Like, it, that, and that works for other people and that's great. It's just not, not our thing. But I think um, because people couldn't tour, they were sort of not only trying to kind of like keep the momentum of their, their like careers going, they were also trying to seek alternate revenue streams. So people were, you know, they'll be really resourceful and trying different things. And it's really refreshing to see. But at the same time, I definitely saw a lot of people who I know them personally. I know they are not comfortable having to do sort of the sort of things that management and labels were asking them to do. And yeah, you know, like we, we're already like a very hands-on band. Like we have a big, we either shoot the videos ourselves or we have a big part in, in kind of like... You quite often direct them, don't you? I've done that in the past. I haven't done it recently. Um, I did some stuff for Glue, like the Highledge video and, and other stuff. But, um, you know, I, I, I work with people who were shooting the video and, um, you know, I help, I put some of the merch together and, and Dan does a lot of photography for us. And, you know, we're quite hands on with the logistical stuff of us, like getting around the world and doing shit, you know? So we, we, we are quite a, a practical group of, of, of people, but you then also having to become sort of like marketers and I don't know, like, TV presenters almost in, in the, you know, the Twitch stream and stuff is like super uncomfortable at first. Like we were not used to that kind of just talking to the abyss. It's weird, you know? Well, it's funny because there's a certain falseness to it. Like when you're kind of looking at your camera and trying to imagine a person there, it, it becomes more of a performance. Whereas when you're on stage performing, despite the fact that there can be an element of theatricality about it, for the most part, it's kind of one of the most genuine forms of performance out there. Definitely, like I, I uh, and that's why I thrive. But that's like why I'm in a band. It's just because I really love the performance element of it, and I love the fact that we have such an interaction with our fan base. And we're really lucky. Like our fan base is sick, and that's what made the Twitch streaming really actually quite enjoyable in the end. It was because it, we kind of start to build a bit of community, and I'd see that a lot of the same people in there in the chat all the time, and we'd have like a real back and forth, and you kind of get to know them personally. So it ends up feeling like you're kind of hanging out with friends, which is great. But at first, there is that real sort of one-sidedness, which can be super uncomfortable. And you kind of get that with fans generally, because they'll kind of, you know, we try to talk to fans after, in normal circumstances after shows and stuff, but they'll, they'll be sort of like, um, they'll kind of come and talk to you, but what they think, they kind of know you, or, or like they're at least familiar with who you are and what you do and stuff, whereas they're a total stranger to you. So it is already unbalanced there. So I find myself kind of like trying to ask them about themselves and stuff, but which can be a bit weird to them. And it's definitely a, a bit one-sided at times. You're almost trying to deflect a little bit and try and readdress that balance kind of. 
Oh, well, I just, I'm like a completely normal person. Like I'm, I'm nobody special. I just happen to be in this band. Like <laughs> I saw uh, somebody tweeted yesterday, I retweeted on our band account. Somebody tweeted saying, um, the reason I like Boston Manor is they're just like five guys who really like death tones who just mind their own business. And I was like, that's really true, actually. Like I do feel like such a just normal person that just happens to be in this, um, in this band, which is really cool. Where do you see that in your music, do you think? Well, I don't like to be too sort of, um, sometimes I try to not be too on the nose or like too literal maybe with, with lyrics and things because I don't want to be like a celebrity. I don't want to try and have too many people make, think that I'm trying to make it about myself. Like I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to have, have it, have my cake and eat it in a sense. I'm trying to address stuff personally and, and get emotions out of myself in a cathartic way but i also want it to be like a bit of a bit of a uh, two-way street and have the audience be able to use that and interpret it in their own way and have attribute that to their own experiences rather than it just being like this is all about me and let me tell you all about myself kind of thing because i don't really get anything out of that and i don't think that i'm a particularly unusual person you know, i'm just like everyone else is it almost like in order for you to get a release from music, in order for it to be cathartic, someone else needs to react to it too and resonate with it? I mean, I think that's an added bonus. I don't think it needs to necessarily. And there's definitely some songs that are like really personal that I'm like, I'm just going to take this one, guys. This one, I need to just have to get this off my chest kind of thing. And then some stuff I try and make it a little bit more uh, conversational, you know. But it does help if people can connect to it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 